Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, Dan Rice. He's given his office for the sake of the cause. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Martha Holly Newsom. She's the president and CEO of Medical Teams International. For those of us who are witnessing Oregon wildfires and in Washington and elsewhere, we're concerned about how can we reach out to fellow Oregonians. There's the Red Cross, but there's also Medical Teams International. They're uh, providing an uh, opportunity for us to reach out to our neighbors. We'll talk with her about that later this hour. Also, we'll speak with Joel Rosenberg. He's the author most recently of The Persian Gamble, which is quite timely given the the president's declaration of a new dawn in the Middle East at the signing of an historic deal earlier in the day. All of that's coming up right here on The Georgine Rice Show. Well, firefighters are battling huge wildfires throughout Oregon and making progress thanks to better weather and national resources. But they face challenges in the coming days with a forecast for wind and lightning, according to state officials. The progress comes as Oregon... Uh, its uh, wildfire death toll dropped on Monday to at least eight rather than 10, uh, given that two sets of remains thought to be human were determined to be animal. Meanwhile, 50 people remained unaccounted for as of yesterday, a number that state officials stress is fluid and may rise as recovery efforts continue, may drop uh, as well. 22 of those people have been confirmed missing, according to the Oregon Office of Emergency Management. Blazes throughout the state have destroyed hundreds of homes, forced tens of thousands of people to flee, and burned more than a million acres. Uh, air quality throughout most of Oregon remains poor today, and conditions in Portland are far and away the worst among major cities globally. In southern Oregon, fires to watch. There's the Doug Graff, chief of fire protection at the Oregon Department of Forestry, who says the blaze he's most concerned about in the coming days as winds could pick up is the Bratane fire near Paisley. The blaze grew 4,151 acres from Monday morning to Tuesday morning and now covers a total of 3,451 acres. Also at the top is of Graff's list is the 14,584-acre 242 fire fire at Chiloquin, which uh, he said is completely surrounded by con- uh, containment lines. All evacuations for the blaze have been lifted. As of Tuesday morning, both fires are 15 percent uh, contained. The Thiessen fire, which is burning about 6,700 acres near Diamond Lake, could also prove challenging. The fire is only contained at about 1 percent. Uh, winds uh, could also fuel the 3,230-acre South uh, Overchain fire near Medford, which is about 20% contained. The Slate Fire, which burned into Oregon from Northern California, covers 131,600 acres and is about 10% contained. Now, in Clackamas County, the lower winds, moderated temperatures, increased humidity are all helping arrest the growth of the Riverside Fire and other smaller blazes in Clackamas County, allowing county officials to back off evacuation levels for some areas. Uh, but 138,000-acre Riverside Fire remains the uh, an uncontained conflagration that fire crews are only beginning to get a handle on with increased resources that have arrived in recent days. Meanwhile, the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office said it was saturating the uh, county with extra patrols to help um, 
uh, form other, uh, or rather with help from other agencies to protect the homes and properties of those evacuated to keep rogue citizen patrols at bay. They said they were um, not seeing a big increase in crime from normal levels and again tried to quash baseless rumors of widespread looting and outside groups targeting the county. In Marion County, last week, Graff said the uh, Riverside fire in Clackamas County might merge with Marion County's Lion's Head and Beachy Creek fires. But on Monday, he said fire crews are now uh, doing their best to maintain a 30,000-acre finger of timber between them. Uh, The Beachy Creek blaze has grown to over 190,000 acres and is 15% contained. The Lion's Head fire has also grown to nearly 168,000 acres and is 5% Contain. Well, in Lane County, the Holiday Farm fire has uh, decimated Blue River, where about 800 people live, ravaged countless others, buildings and dwellings along Oregon 126. The fire grew 1,550 acres from Monday morning to Tuesday morning. It now covers a total of 166,000 acres and is about 6% contained. There are fires in Douglas, uh, Lincoln, Washington County, where both fires in Washington County are now 100% contained. And uh, the firefighting continues with both those who are paid and those who are volunteer firefighters working night and day to protect human life and to protect property. Meanwhile, Governor Kate Brown has invoked the Emergency Conflagration Act in response to the Bretagne fire. Uh, The governor said the situation remains very dangerous in Paisley. Wind continues to uh, fuel these wildfires with devastating consequences across the region. People's homes, lives, land and safety are at risk. If you're in the evacuation zone, please stay vigilant. uh, Pay close attention and listen to local calls to evacuate as needed. This can save your life, your family and the lives of our firefighters. When in accordance with Oregon law, the governor determined that a threat to a life, safety and property exists due to fire and the threat exceeds the firefighting capable uh, capabilities rather to local firefighting personnel and equipment so the governor's declaration authorizes the Oregon office of state fire marshal to mobilize resources to assist local resources battling that fire. She also uh, requested presidential disaster uh, declaration for the ongoing wildfires throughout the state of Oregon saying that Oregon is strong, Oregon is resilient, but the fire the fight to fight fires of this scale, we need all the help we can get. She says, I'm grateful for this federal support, which will help us to both address urgent disaster response needs on the ground and move towards recovery. Now, later in the program, we're going to talk with Martha Holly Newsom. She's the president and CEO of Medical Teams International. I know for many of us who aren't directly impacted, despite the uh, the, the uh, smoke that we're all inhaling, we want to reach out to our neighbors across the state, and Medical Teams International is one vehicle you might consider to do just that. She'll join us briefly to talk about uh, what resources are available and how we can come alongside them and help uh, to serve our neighbors who have been displaced because of recent events. Meanwhile, the um, Hurricane Sally is flooding the Gulf Coast as officials urge residents in low-lying areas to run from the water. The U.S. National Hurricane Center in Miami said of midday Tuesday, Hurricane Sally is a Category 1 storm, packing maximum sustained winds of 80 miles per hour and is located about 115 miles south of Mobile, Alabama, inching literally at 2 miles per hour northwest. Sally should reach land near the Alabama-Mississippi state line by late Tuesday or early Wednesday, bringing the threat of a storm surge of up to seven feet along Alabama's coast, including Mobile Bay. 
a saying uh, the National Weather Service has is hide from the wind, run from the water. That's a quote from the National Weather Service meteorologist John DeBlock saying Tuesday during a news conference, now is the time to run from the water. Well, the governors of Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama have all declared states of emergency, and President Trump issued emergency declarations for parts of those states in advance of the storm. Mandatory evacuations have been ordered in some areas. This is not worth risking your life, the Alabama Governor Kay Ivey said during a news conference while urging residents near Mobile Bay and low-lying areas to leave. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has declared a state of emergency for the Panhandle counties of Santa Rosa and Escambia as the storm's track shifted east. But hours before the worst of Sally is set to arrive, coastal areas are also dealing with floodwaters. Officials closed the uh, causeway to uh, Dauphin Island in Alabama after many residents and visitors evacuated on Monday. Um, and the sandbags were also placed in front of the doors to keep the, the tunnel from being inundated with storm surge in other areas in that uh, in that region. So we here in the state of Oregon are dealing with wind and fire in other parts of the country, wind and water. It's a good time to pray generally and specifically for the needs of the people, at least that we are aware of. And again, we'll talk with Martha Holly Newsom with Medical Teams International about uh, one way we can reach out to fellow Oregonians to minister to their needs during this critical time. And of course, keeping in mind that all of this is taking place during a, a pandemic that requires that we stay distanced from one another, which makes uh, dealing with those who are displaced a bit more challenging. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Trump today declared the dawn of a new Middle East as he presided over the signing of two historic Middle East diplomatic deals between Israel and two Gulf nations. We're here this afternoon, the president said, to change the course of history. After decades of division and conflict, we mark the dawn of a new Middle East, he said, at the ceremony on the South Lawn of the White House. Thanks to the great courage of the leaders of these three countries, we take a major stride toward a future in which people of all faiths and backgrounds live together in peace and prosperity. The deal uh, between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and um, Bahrain involved the Exchanging of ambassadors, establishment of embassies, cooperation on a range of fronts, including trade, security, and tourism. The agreements, known as the Abraham Accords, also allow Muslims to visit Islamic holy sites in Israel. Trump said the deal would uh, form the foundation for a comprehensive peace across the entire region. Earlier in the Oval Office, the president said, we're very far down the road with about five additional countries. He declined to name the countries he's speaking with and later said it could be five or six other countries. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the foreign ministries of both the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain were present to sign the deals at the ceremony. President Trump signed on to each as a witness. The leaders also signed a separate trilateral declaration of peace. The UAE deal was announced last month with the Bahrain deal announced on Friday. It was a big foreign policy day for the president, although you wouldn't have known it. Much of the press simply ignored it altogether, referring to it as a distraction. This day is a pivot of history. It heralds a new dawn of peace. Netanyahu said for thousands of years, the Jewish people have prayed for peace. For decades, the Jewish state has prayed for peace. And this is why today we are filled with such profound gratitude. Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed al-Nayam of uh, the United Arab Emirates, their foreign ministry, said 
Uh, we are already um, witnessing a change in the heart of the Middle East, a change that will send hope around the world. Meanwhile, Bahrain's foreign minister praised Trump's role in securing the deal. Mr. President, your statesmanship and tireless efforts have brought us here today and made peace a reality. While critics have noted that such deals ignore Palestinians and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it is hoped that the deal would uh, be the start of a warmer Arab-Israeli relationship. Uh, Trump told Fox and Friends on Tuesday morning that other countries want to come in and that he believes the Palestinians will eventually come in too although maybe kicking and screaming. You're going to have peace in the Middle East, Trump said, adding that countries, including Iran, were actually getting to a point where they're going to want to make a deal. They won't uh, say that outwardly. They want to make it. A, uh, they do want to make a deal. Well, Democrats have given some support to the agreements with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying in a statement that it marked an important day, but said that questions remain, including about a commitment from the UAE to purchase F-35 jets, which has led to fears it could blunt Israel's military superiority in the region. Meanwhile, the city of Louisville on Tuesday announced a $12 million financial settlement with Breonna Taylor's family, eclipsing previous payments made by police. City officials have also agreed to institute a number of police reforms aimed at preventing future deaths, the mayor, Greg Fisher, said in the press conference. Taylor, you might recall, was fatally shot by police in her apartment six months ago following a no-knock search warrant. Her death has led to widespread protests against police brutality and systematic racism across the country. Since uh, Taylor's shooting, Louisville's mayor has banned the use of no-knock warrants, which allow the police to forcibly enter a person's home and search it without warning. The Taylor settlement would also see the city make changes on how police warrants are carried out by officers. In June, the Louisville Metro Police Department fired Brett Hankinson, one of three officers involved in the fatal shooting, a step that marked the most significant action taken in the case so far, but one that also drew public condemnation because no one had been formally charged criminally in her death. However, Daniel Cameron, the Kentucky Attorney General, a Republican and the state's first black attorney general, is considering whether to bring charges against the three white officers involved in Taylor's death. Taylor's family sued the city in April, named the three officers involved uh, as defendants. The suit alleged Taylor's life was wrongfully taken, that the officers has used, had used excessive force, and that the search was grossly negligent. It also claimed that Taylor's death was the result of Louis, uh, Louisville Police's effort to clear out a block for gentrification, and that the recently formed Place-Based Investigations Unit consisted of rogue cops who violated all levels of policy, protocol, and policing standards. President Trump is warning Iran after reports the country is considering a plot to assassinate the U.S. ambassador to South Africa. President Trump took to Twitter late Monday and warned that Iran that uh, warned Iran that any strike against the U.S. would be met with a counterattack 1,000 times greater in magnitude, end quote. Well, Trump cited reports that said Tehran may be considering an assassination attempt on Lana Marks, the United States ambassador to South Africa, U.S. officials have been aware of the threat against the ambassador since the spring, but intelligence suggests those threats have become more specific in recent weeks. An intelligence source said that the intel community is taking the threat against the ambassador seriously and believes the Iranian regime potentially has the ability to act on an assassination plot. She is just one of several U.S. officials that American intelligence agencies believe Tehran is considering for retaliation for the kill of Soleimani. 
Iran has denied the reports. The Pentagon said Soleimani was actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region. In other developments, Iran is considering the plot to assassinate uh, the South African ambassador and others. The president has uh, ordered an attack that killed um, General Qassan Soleimani and other military officials in Baghdad, all being linked together. And the president says Soleimani was planning imminent and sinister attacks and first uh, public uh, remarks since the U.S. strike against him. The president also said Soleimani should have been killed years ago, was hated within Iran. Hurricane Sally has strengthened rapidly as the Gulf Coast is bracing mandatory evacuation orders issued in Louisiana. Mississippi residents along the Gulf Coast were under hurricane and tropical storm warnings on Monday as a rapidly strengthening Hurricane Sally zeroed in on the region. It's uh, rapidly strengthening but moving very slowly. The U.S. National Hurricane Center in Miami said the midday Monday that hurricane hunters had found Sally had rapidly strengthened to a hurricane status. As of 11 p.m. Eastern Time Monday, Sally was located about 130 miles southeast of Biloxi, Mississippi, moving at three miles per hour. That's since been lowered to two miles an hour in a west-northwest direction. The current forecast uh, by the National Weather Service shows the storm will be a Category 2 hurricane by the time it makes landfall early uh, or mid or late Tuesday. Regardless of how strong it gets, the impact will be the same, with the biggest risk being the water. As Hurricane Sally approaches, New Orleans floodgates uh, are closed and tropical storms Teddy and Vicky are forming as the Hurricane Center tracks eight systems, storms everywhere. Mississippi governor is warning uh, coastal residents of Hurricane Sally the time to get out is now and Gulf Coast residents are bracing for new Hurricane Sally warnings. Well, Kamala Harris, the vice presidential Democratic running mate to Joe Biden, accidentally touted plans under a Harris administration during a virtual roundtable. Kamala Harris, the running mate to Joe Biden in the 2020 election, raised eyebrows on Monday evening after she accidentally touted economic plans under a Harris administration. They want to cut her a little slack. After all, she was a presidential contender just a short while ago. Speaking during a virtual roundtable with the small business owners in Arizona, she vowed that they will have an ally in the White House with the campaign's Build Back Better initiative. However, California senator appeared to briefly suggest she was at the top of the Democratic ticket. Some would argue that is the case, as Joe Biden won't finish out his term. The majority of Democrats believe that to be the case. A Harris administration, she said, together with Joe Biden as the president of the United States, she quickly clarified the Biden-Harris administration will provide access to $100 billion in low-interest loans and investments for my, uh, from minority business owners. The mainstream media spent years accusing Joe Biden's gaffes, blunders, um, or or rather excusing uh, the media research center critics uh, are pointing out. And another critic uh, slammed mainstream media's rush to cast Kamala Harris as a moderate. Absolutely, it is coordinated and untrue. And Guy Benson on Joe Biden's latest gaffe, this is why Team Biden keeps him in the basement. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're working our way through uh, some of today's uh, top news stories. We'll take a quick break. We'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Joel Rosenberg, his book, The Persian Gamble. And in our next segment, we'll talk with Martha Holly Newsom. She's the president and CEO of Medical Teams International on hygiene packs they're making available to help displaced Oregonians. We'll find out how you and I can help as well. 
Well, Los Angeles Sheriff Alex Villanueva has challenged LeBron James to match the reward money for the gunman who ambushed two deputies in Compton, saying his remarks may have contributed to that action. And the University of Pittsburgh scientists discover antibodies that neutralize the virus that causes coronavirus. Ohio will not provide return postage for mail-in ballots for the 2020 election. And Netflix Cuties prompts the churn as domestic subscribers are fleeing. J.P. Morgan CEO Diamond says the economic recovery could be derailed. And billionaire Steve Cohen is going to buy the New York Mets for a massive sum. John Durham's speculation uh, is reaching a fever pitch after his aide's uh, resignation. Lindsey Graham's comments and phone wipe mystery is uh, being probed. The CDC is moving ahead with a critical race theory trainings despite the president's order to the contrary. And the Justice Department's internal watchdog is investigating Roger Stone's sentencing. Well, attacks on Chicago officers are up five times over previous years, according to the Daily Wire. And two Los Angeles County deputies are in stable condition after being shot. The search for the assailant continues. The reward continues to rise. Wounded female L.A. deputy shot through the jaw and both arms gave the hit partner Uh, gave her partner emergency medical treatment after the ambush. And Rochester's mayor has fired the police chief over the handling of the Daniel Prude case. Federal ruling, Florida can require eligible felons to pay fines and fees in order to vote. Well, riots and looting hit Pennsylvania after a police shooting uh, of a minority man who was charging at the officers with a knife. And protesters are demanding police officers let themselves be stabbed or shot. NBC's woke Sunday night football ratings have plummeted nearly 30 percent compared to 2019, and uh, they're there to cover the game. That's what CBS is telling its announcers, telling them not to editorialize on the NFL social justice efforts. Maryland is adding an LGBTQ content to their public school's history curricula, and the University of Chicago's English department is declaring it will only accept applicants interested in working in and with black studies for its next graduate admissions cycle. The college board reportedly became key partners with Chinese regime. The academic behemoth behind APSAT helped advance Chinese infiltration in K-12 schools. You can find out more at the Washington Free Beacon. Well, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled that government can end humanitarian protections for some 300,000 immigrants, and the Department of Homeland Security is cracking down on goods made with Chinese forced labor. They also leaked email uh, uh, confirmed that Antifa is an organized group. Uh, There was some talk of it being loosely configured, so you couldn't really hold any one uh, or collection of individuals accountable for their actions. It is apparently, through a DHS-leaked email, a, an organized organization. The University of Pittsburgh scientists have discovered the antibody that neutralizes SARS-CoV-2, or COVID-19 as we know it, and an inflammatory, a rather anti-inflammatory drug may shorten COVID's re- recovery time. The U.S. is halting the ineffective symptom checks and screening for high-risk uh, countries as well. Well, on the day in history, 1959, Nikita Khrushchev becomes the first Soviet head of state to visit the United States as he arrives at Andrews Air Force Base outside Washington. 1963, four little black girls are killed when a bomb goes off during Sunday services at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Three Ku Klux Klansmen eventually would be convicted for their roles in the blast. 1972, on this day in history, a federal grand jury in Washington 
indicts seven men in connection with the Watergate break-ins. 1981, the Senate Judiciary Committee votes unanimously to approve the Supreme Court nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor. 1985, Nike begins selling its Air Jordan 1 sneakers. 2001, President George um, W. Bush orders U.S. troops to get ready for war and brace the Americans for a long, difficult assault against terrorists to avenge the September 11th attack of the same year. And finally, on this day in history, 2009, Federal Research Reserve Chairman rather uh, Ben Bernanke says the worst recession since the 1930s was very likely over, although he cautions that pain, especially for nearly 15 million unemployed Americans, would persist. And as we now know, did. Well, President uh, Trump in an interview uh, this morning claimed a vaccine for coronavirus could be approved in a matter of weeks. I'm not doing it for political reasons. I want the vaccine fast, he said, uh, of a push for a vaccine called Operation Warp Speed. Uh, You wouldn't have a vaccine for years. I sped up the process with the FDA. We're going to have a vaccine in a matter of weeks. It could be four weeks. It could be eight weeks. We have a lot of great companies, end quote. Well, during his uh, appearance, the president also spoke about Hurricane Sally, slammed journalist Bob Woodward and cohort Carl Bernstein for critical comments the journalists have made about him. He called Bernstein a nut job and accused liberal cities of getting weak and soft against crime in the wake of a shooting of two Los Angeles sheriff's deputies. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told her caucus on a conference call today that she plans to keep members in Washington, D.C. until a deal is reached on a coronavirus relief proposal, a process that's been stalled for months since the House passed its initial $3 trillion-plus bill in May. A source who was on the call said Democratic House members agreed with Pelosi's plan to stay in town until a bill is passed. The House is traditionally out of town for much of late September and October as members scatter to their districts for the stretch run of their re-election campaigns. If Pelosi keeps members in D.C. until a coronavirus relief package is passed, it could harm vulnerable incumbents of both parties who could otherwise be meeting with constituents in their efforts to remain in office. Of course, meeting with constituents is a whole different ballgame under the pandemic. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer noted the deal would be negotiated at the leadership level, so rank-and-file members would not necessarily need to stay in their offices every day. I just got off a call with my colleagues, so we are committed to staying here until we have an agreement, an agreement that meets the needs of the American people. We're optimistic that the White House at least will understand that we have to do some things, she said in a subsequent interview on CNBC. Uh, the move by Pelosi comes as Democrats and Republicans have had little luck finding common ground on a future coronavirus relief package. Well, YouTube has censored another uh, Trump advisor, Google. Straight up, full stop, censorship. More recently, uh, they've covered the deeply dishonest uh, tech giant's efforts to suppress or silence conservative voices and thereby damage Donald Trump's chances for re-election. So it's no surprise that Google's YouTube vehicle is getting in on the act. What is surprising, though, are the depths to which Google and YouTube will stoop to silence those with whom they disagree. It's one thing, for example, for Facebook to de-platform a provocative conspiracy theorist like Alex Jones, for example. It's another thing, however, for YouTube to remove a June 23rd Hoover Institution interview with Dr. Scott Atlas, the noted author and former chief of 
uh, radiology at Stanford University's medical center and an official advisor to the president. As the Wall Street Journal's James Freeman asks, does cancel culture now dictate that Americans must be denied sensible medical information? Google parent Alphabet's YouTube division seems to have blocked a White House medical advisor's analysis because it conflicts with the flawed pronouncements uh, pronouncements rather of the U.N. bureaucracy. That U.N. bureaucracy is, of course, the notorious World Health Organization, which has become little more than a paid mouthpiece for the communist Chinese and an accomplice to its deadly malfeasance regarding the cause, timing, and spread of the Wuhan coronavirus. While as Hoover fellow... Uh, Lonnie Chen points out the fact that YouTube considers the World Health Organization an authoritative resource on the subject is shameful. The World Health Organization spread China's early lie that COVID-19 could not be transmitted between humans, and it spread faulty information about the usefulness of masks at slowing the spread. Well, Chen, uh, Chen rather, could have gone much further. He can, uh, he could have, for example, detailed uh, who Director General. Tadros's rich and deeply corrupt relationship with the Chinese communists, which predated even his initial campaign for the Hu job. And he could have uh, called out the organization's laundering and recasting of China's COVID-19 lies into assessments of seeming respectability. Actually, though, Chen has already done so. That said, um, YouTube has censored an American uh, credentialed doctor uh, with reliable information because it was attached to an administration they disagree with. So the American people didn't have the benefit of access to that very information. Now, we need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk with Martha Holly Newsom, president and CEO of Medical Teams International. We'll talk about their effort to minister to Oregonians who have been displaced as a result of our wildfires. And if time permits, we'll also talk about their efforts in uh, helping to respond to COVID-19 around the world. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've been talking about fire in the um, state of Oregon, Washington, and California, and the devastation that many of our neighbors are suffering. And I know for many of us, our first response is, what can I do to support my neighbors who have been displaced, who have lost a great deal, and so on? Well, I always think about Northwest Medical Teams, which is now Medical Teams International. It was uh, born and raised, if you will, right here in the Portland metro area in the Pacific Northwest. And it's not surprising that they are providing a way for us to reach out to our neighbors. So I invited Martha Holly News who's the president and CEO of um, Medical Teams International, to talk about what uh, what they are doing to help us reach out to our neighbors who have been displaced. Martha, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Georgine. This is such a tremendously challenging season, and we'll maybe talk about some of the other things Medical Teams is doing. But right now, with the wildfires uh, devastating parts of Oregon, Washington, and California, many of us are desperate to know what we can do to come alongside our neighbors and help them. And I was uh, happy to learn, but not surprised, that Medical Teams International is providing one way for us to do that. Tell us about the hygiene packs that are currently uh, being distributed. Yes, no, happy to do that. And we are just feeling really fortunate and grateful that we can respond as well. Because like you, we've just been watching um, communities' neighbors and the devastation that has hit our communities here in Oregon. Um, And not to mention the smoke that we're all dealing with as well. But we have a group of amazing volunteers that are in our distribution center. 
and they are assembling hygiene kits. And so each of those kits is enough hygiene materials to last one person for one month. So it includes shampoo, toothpaste, deodorant, uh, uh, band-aids, a washcloth, just everything that they would need. It's a $10 kit. And I know personally, even from talking from to some of our staff, that they went from um, you know one level to having to evacuate in about 15 minutes. But yes. many people, you know, they just got out with their family if if they were fortunate and blessed, right? And their animals and and maybe a few items. Many of them didn't even get to pack. Um, so that's what's happening right now. And 600 of those kits were distributed yesterday to our partner in Salem. So we're partnering with United Way and they are active at the evacuation centers at the Oregon State Fairgrounds and the Deschutes County Fairgrounds and getting those kits out. Yeah, it's hard for most of us to imagine being in a situation where we have lost literally everything. Our homes are gone, our memories are gone. We, our family, our pets and and whatever, we might have uh, gathered up a few things, but just those basic necessities suddenly become so much more important when you don't have access to them. Now, for listeners who would like to take advantage of the opportunity to, again, reach out to our neighbors, how can they do that uh, coming alongside Medical Teams International? Well, Georgina, it's really easy. They could go straight to our website, so medicalteams.org. We also have a 1-800 number that they could call as well. It's 1-800-959-4325. And um, folks can get involved by, you know, just sending a donation in to help us cover the cost of those kits. We're also just really fortunate to have a number of Oregon-based companies that are already helping out, such as Research Fine Foods and Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield, ADEC. So, Really grateful for everyone just doing what they can. Um, Of course, we want to pray for everybody who has been impacted as well. Um, And I know that there's a number of folks that are volunteers, volunteering right on the front lines as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly those firefighters and others who, as you pointed out, are on the front line. One of the reasons I really enjoy uh, directing people to Medical Teams International is that Medical Teams is a decidedly Christian organization. And so when we are extending the love of Christ, that is done so well by Medical Teams International, in this case, right here in our own community. I know that in addition to these wildfires that are relatively recent, Medical Teams International has also been responding to COVID-19 around the world. How has that impacted your work and what's been the focus of addressing the challenges of uh, providing people uh, outside of our community around the world who don't have access to the things that uh, that we clamor for that that keep us safe? Oh, Georgina, I'm so glad you asked about that because, you know, medical teams, as you mentioned, you know, out of being born out of Salem, Oregon, 40 years ago, we have been responding to to provide life-saving medical care to people in crisis um, for the whole entire history of our organization. Mm-hmm. We continue to do that for survivors of natural disasters and refugees. So a lot of what we do around the world is to respond to refugees that have been displaced from their homes as well, providing essential primary medical care, you know, strengthening the health system, helping communities to help themselves. And with that, with COVID, of course, we just had to add on our response to COVID to what we normally are doing in those situations, which is to help people understand the disease, how to prevent it. We've been providing that protective 
um, equipment that is so critical, both for the health workers as well as for individuals, masks, um, to help prevent them from getting the disease. We've also been screening. In some cases, like Bangladesh, we had to convert one of our clinics to a 50-bed COVID facility. And our teams in the U.S. have actually pivoted as well. We normally are providing mobile dental care, and we switched to providing emergency dental care and then have half of our fleet of our big red vans that people sometimes see on the roads mm-hmm. are providing COVID testing. And so we've been coordinating really closely with the Department of Health in Washington. We're in conversations with Oregon Health Authority about how we can help with testing here in Oregon as well. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, I have served on the board with Medical Teams International several years ago. I know how it works from the inside out, and I wholeheartedly endorse the work that you're doing here and certainly have done for many years uh, all around the country. Medical Teams International is highly respected around the globe for the work that they do and have managed, well, while some other organizations have not, to maintain their distinctive Christian identity. So I would uh, encourage our listeners to go to the website, medicalteams.org, to learn more about the the wildfire relief fund as well as how COVID is impacting the work. But just to learn more about how this organization birthed in the Pacific Northwest has been ministering around the world for many, many years. Uh, again, encourage you to, to check that out and consider supporting the work that they're doing. Well, Martha, I so appreciate it. I know you were in a board meeting. You're stepping away to, uh, to give us a little bit of uh, background on what Medical Teams is doing right now. We'll continue to keep you all in our prayers, and I hope many of our listeners will respond uh, with this opportunity to minister to our neighbors and to those who are our neighbors but live at some greater distance. Thank you so much. Mm. Oh, thank you, Georgine. Really appreciate your time. And together we can be the hands and feet of Jesus. Absolutely. Thank you, Martha. Again, Martha Holly Newsom is president and CEO of Medical Teams International. These hygiene packs are being distributed to our neighbors here in uh, Oregon. And you can go to the website to learn more about that and all the great work that Medical Teams International is doing. Again, medicalteams.org. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got uh, news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour in just a few moments. But I want to give you a heads up. I'm going to share a conversation I had with Joel Rosenberg. His latest book is The Persian Gamble. Uh, It's uh, rather timely as President Trump uh, declared the dawn of a new Middle East at the signing of an historic deal earlier today. Uh, Joel Rosenberg tends to have uh, an uncanny insight into what's going on in the world and what's likely to happen into the future. We're going to talk with him about uh, his latest book, The Persian Gamble, uh, coming up in the second hour of today's program. In the meantime, I know all of us have a great deal of uh, care and concern for our neighbors, and let's remember to keep them in our prayers and, when possible, to offer constructive help uh, to those who have been displaced, their homes destroyed, and it's difficult to imagine losing everything. We read about that sort of thing happening in other parts of the country, but it doesn't happen here Uh, Very often it's up close and personal. We're breathing in the smoke that's the residue of what's happening around the states of Oregon, Washington, and California. So it's a great opportunity for us to be moved by compassion to respond as, um, as the Lord gives us the resource to do just that. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, I'm so excited about this next hour because we have the opportunity to talk with Joel Rosenberg, who once again has proven his ability to foreshadow geopolitical realities as a leader in fact-based fiction with his newest political thriller out uh, in the middle of this month, The Persian Gamble. 
Um, one of his um, uh, observers pointed out that this is the boldest, most daring th- thriller to date, saying it offers up a terrifying glimpse of where the conflict between Russia and the United States could be headed. And I would certainly agree. Well, this is Joel Rosenberg's 14th book. It's based off his research and uh, trips to the West Wing in the White House, the Kremlin, the tunnels under the DMZ between North and South Korea, the presidential palace in Cairo, the royal palace in Amman. And the brutal streets of Kabul in Afghanistan. Yeah, I know. How does he do it all? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Well, Joel Rosenberg has garnered high-powered fans ranging from presidents, prime ministers, kings to CIA directors, dozens of members of the U.S. House and Senate. In addition to entertaining readers worldwide as a fiction author, he also regularly meets with world leaders, serves as a news expert regarding the threat of Russia and the danger of evil if it's ignored. Well, Joel Rosenberg is a New York Times best-selling author of 14 novels and five nonfiction books with nearly 5 million copies sold. He's been interviewed by or written articles for hundreds of media outlets, has been profiled by the New York Times, the Washington Times, the Jerusalem Post. He's a graduate of Syracuse University with a BFA in filmmaking. Uh, he's married and he and his family live in uh, Israel. We're just delighted to have Joel Rosenberg back. I look forward to this and just, uh, I figure the time between books is just, you know, waiting for the next one to come out. Joel Rosenberg, welcome. Hey, Georgine. Great to be with you again. Thank it, you for having me on the show. It's good to have you back. Well, this latest book, The Persian Gamble, uh, brings together elements that are much in the headlines today, but in a way, painting a scenario of what could happen if events were to move in a particular direction. And I know one of the things that impresses us most about your writing is that you seem to have uh, not just insight, but foresight in terms of, of the worst case scenario, uh, should people not take evil as seriously as they ought? Well, in this case, the Persian gamble, um, the regime in, in Tehran, the Iranian regime, uh, is secretly trying to buy five operational, uh, fully operational nuclear warheads uh, from North Korea. Uh, they're trying to do this uh, secretly because publicly the Iranian regime is claiming that they are adhering to the uh, famous Iran nuclear deal that President Obama and the Western powers negotiated with Iran uh, several years ago. So, uh, as you may recall, in the actual Iran nuclear deal, uh, the U.S. and the Western powers gave Iran $150 billion in cash uh, to say yes, uh, essentially, to, um, to this nuclear deal. But in the novel, The Persian Gamble, Iran is using that money to secretly buy these five fully operational nuclear warheads from North Korea. So now, admittedly, this is, this is fiction, right? Where I'm not, this is not a, you know, a Bob Woodward book. Yeah. It's not a story of what's really happening. And yet it's, I think it's a chillingly plausible scenario given the fact that right now uh, North Korea has between 20 and 60 fully operational nuclear warheads. They've been testing their nuclear warheads, and they seem ready to go. And that's why, uh, in real life, President Trump was in, in Hanoi last week uh, trying to negotiate with the North Koreans to give up these weapons, because, God forbid, if they don't get rid of them, they're going to either use them or sell them. Now, you in the book, you um, have the world powers of Russia, uh, Iran, North Korea, uh, collaborating together in what would be a, a holy terror uh, if it were to develop in the way that you um, outline in the book, and certainly, again, is very plausible. 
you also have the former U.S. Secret Service agent Marcus Riker, who is a character that continues from your your previous book. Um, tell us why these three captured the uh, the focus of this next addition to your series. Right. Well, you know, in some ways, uh, they seem an unlikely uh, trio uh, to form an axis of evil. Um, the, the the actual real-life government of Russia is very, very different from the government in Iran, mm-hmm. which is very different, uh, in turn, from the leadership of North Korea, right? Uh, Vladimir Putin is, is, is a, an imperialist. He's a modern 21st century Russian czar. That's how he. That's how Putin sees himself. Uh, the leader of North Korea. How does he see himself, Kim Jong Un, as a god? <laughs> you know, as a megalomaniacal uh, dictator of a communist regime. Then you go to Iran. How does the Ayatollah Khomeini or Khamenei uh, see himself? Well, he sees himself as the John the Baptist, laying the groundwork, as it were, for the Islamic uh, Messiah, known as the Twelfth Imam who's going to come and reign over the entire world and force us all to, you know, convert to Islam or die. Those are three very different governments. And yet, uh, and yet in real life, uh, the Russians, the Iranians, and the North Koreans are, are building a military alliance that maybe hasn't gone as far as what I'm portraying in the Persian Gamble. But, but, if, if, but they are working closely together. And the question is why? The reason why... Moscow, Pyongyang, and Tehran work so closely together in real life is because of their deep, deep hatred of the United States mm-hmm. and the Western alliance. And their, uh, that, that, that hatred uh, is an incredibly risky and dangerous situation for us in America and for all of our allies because, you know, maybe Russia isn't crazy enough to actually launch a nuclear weapon at us, but North Korea and Iran might be. And uh, right now, North Korea has the weapons. Iran is trying to get the weapons. North Korea has the ICBMs that can reach America. Iran wants those ICBMs. So uh, it's an incredibly dangerous alliance. So the, the, uh, the common enemy being the United States is what holds them together. But is that sufficient to hold them together through what could be a major conflict? And what happens if they succeed, because as you've just described, these are three very different uh, leaders, very different um, countries with different styles and goals. That's right. And in the Persian Gamble, um, you get a sense of, of the differences, even uh, while um, watching how and why they might work closely together. Um, Ultimately, Russia wants to be the leader of, of this alliance. Uh, they're trying to form an alliance with a lot of other countries, not just uh, North Korea and Iran. But in North Korea and Iran, they've got two of the most dangerous rogue regimes uh, on the planet in the history of mankind. And, uh, you know, the idea that, that one of these countries can control the destiny of the others, uh, when they, even if they want to, is... Uh, that's a problematic idea, and, and, and that's what was happening in the Persian Gamble is you've got uh, the, uh, the North Koreans who have these weapons, but, they're, they're, but their people are starving, and they're, and they're crying out for cash because of all these economic sanctions. Rather than make peace, they're trying to make money by selling military hardware uh, secretly. So the question is, might they get so desperate 
that they decide to sell nuclear weapons right off the shelf uh, to Iran, which has a lot of money and is desperately trying to get these weapons. And that's where my former Secret Service agent, former Marine uh, Marcus Riker, finds himself right in the middle of this vortex of evil uh, and begins to pick up on uh, the rumors that uh, North Korea is about to make this deal with Iran. And Riker has to figure out, is it true? And how do I confirm it? And then uh, how do I intercept it and thwart it from happening? Now, your um, books, as I mentioned, tend to reflect uh, what's going on geopolitically with a great deal of insight. From your perspective, do you want your readers um, to be, uh, do you see this as a cautionary tale? Uh, Do you see this as pure entertainment? What do you hope your readers come away with uh, when they've looked at what is likely the worst case scenario may not happen, might may not be likely, but could happen? What do you uh, hope to accomplish? Well, I guess all uh, I've got a lot of objectives, but the number one, Georgine, by far is to entertain people. Right. If I don't keep you up all night till you're cursing me on Twitter or Facebook (laughs) or some form of social media at five or six o'clock in the morning because you've been reading all night, telling yourself just just one more chapter and suddenly it's time to go to work. (laughs) If you're not cursing me, then I have not done my job Uh, that, you know, people don't have the time or the money to waste uh, on, you know, 28 bucks or whatever retail on on a story that's made up. You know, I'm amazed to sell 5 million (laughs) copies of things that are not true. Um, I mean, some of the books that I wrote are are nonfiction, so that's, that's different. But the vast majority of what I write are completely made up. And to hold someone to the first chapter, to the next chapter, to every single page, um, and to and and to have them be, you know, just intensely interested in, in what's going to happen, how this story is going to end, uh, is very hard to do, uh, especially when it's not just regular, ordinary people like you and me who are reading it. It's um, the vice president of the United States reads these books. Uh, Mike Pence, uh, Secretary of State. Mike Pompeo reads these books. Um, you know, it's the King Abdullah of Jordan reads these books. Former directors of the Central Intelligence Agency. Why are they reading these books? Like they know they have more access to more dangerous things uh, than any of us. And yet, so 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 writing a novel that can entertain and hold their yeah. attention yeah. is extremely different difficult. Now, it's also true that I'm trying to educate and inspire and warn and there's a lot of things going on in these novels um because i think a lot of americans know oh i i i know i should know more about the north korean problem trump is over there trying to fix it and the iranian problem and the russians but i don't have the time or interest to get you know up to speed on you know read hundreds of, you know 900 page books on the history of this country or that so right, so reading a high-speed political thriller, if it's well constructed, you know you have an opportunity to sort of learn the issues without realizing that you're learning it because because I'm taking you on this high-speed yeah. uh, thrill ride where your heart is pounding and you forget that your brain is actually learning something. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking this afternoon with Joel Rosenberg. His forthcoming novel portrays the terrifying national threat of a North Korea, Iran, and Russia nuclear alliance. 
More on the Persian Gamble when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation this afternoon with New York Times bestselling author um, Joel Rosenberg, his latest new political thriller, The Persian Gamble, it closely mirrors events uh, in the Middle East. Now, the president just had his uh, second summit with Kim Jong-un. There were those in this country who wanted to see it fail for political reason. There were, were others who wanted desperately to see uh, this uh, talk move forward toward denuclearization. The South Koreans were hopeful. How, from your perspective and your knowledge base, how likely was it that this was going to be anything more than a photo op? And do you think the uh, uh, the Trump administration is prepared sufficiently to move forward in a constructive way that can lead to denuclearization? Well, it's a good question, Georgine. Um, I have been supportive of President Trump's efforts to get the North Koreans to the table and to try to convince uh, Kim Jong-un, the the dear leader of uh, North Korea, that it is in his personal interest Mm -hmm. to give up the nuclear weapons program, uh, scrap that, make peace with South Korea, um, have all the economic sanctions removed, and join the global economy. This is how his people are going to eat. And this is how ultimately his regime will be safe because uh, because it will have some degree of legitimacy of, of at least taking care of the people rather than enslaving and starving them. Uh, now, I, I think what I think there's a lot of skepticism that it's going to work, and I, I share the skepticism, yeah. but I don't share the cynicism. Right, you have a lot of people on the left who are who are acting. This is ridiculous. What is what is President Trump even bothering? Even what what is he? What kind of idiot does he think he is that he can make a deal with a rogue regime like North Korea? But they weren't saying that when President Obama was dealing with the rogue regime of Iran. Now the problem. So 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 I was not opposed to Obama negotiating with Iran, but I was opposed to him making a terrible deal where Iran gets everything and where we get nothing. And that's why I, I think that President Trump was right. Once he realized, look, these guys are not ready yet. Maybe they will be in six months or a year, but they're not ready now. So he walked away. He didn't give them um, all the concessions that North Korea wanted. And that shocked North Korea because North Korea, you know, many regimes, or I'm sorry, many American presidents, Clinton, and Obama, for example, uh, but the Bush team, too, made deals with uh, North Korea that uh, that were useless. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was good for Trump to, to try, also good for him to walk away. Do you think Kim Jong-un has any inkling that giving up his nuclear weapons in exchange for legitimacy and the ability to provide for his people is even something he's taking seriously? You know, I think he is taking it seriously. I just think he's testing how serious Trump is, hmm. right? I mean, if you can get something for nothing, why not get it? You know, uh, you know, the Iranians tested Obama, and they found out that Obama wanted the deal more than they did, and therefore they, they, were, persu- they were able to persuade Obama to take a really, really bad deal. Uh, they were not able, uh, the North Koreans were not able to persuade that of Trump. Now, is that still a risk? Yeah, it's a risk. Anytime you start to engage in negotiations, uh, then there's a risk that you'll take a bad deal 
over no deal. But uh, Trump didn't, um, and I was encouraged by that because, you know, Trump is still uh, – there's things I support about him, and there's things that make me nervous about him. And so I wasn't quite sure what he was going to do. Yeah. But I have to tell you, I do like Secretary Pompeo. I know him personally. I do like John Bolton. I know him personally. These are tough guys. They're smart guys. And I think with them at President Trump's side, uh, there's there's as good a shot as there's going to be at trying to see whether the North Koreans are ready to to give up. And imagine if they did. It would really be a great, great development. Oh, absolutely. Now, in your, um, your forthcoming novel, The Persian Gamble, North Korea continues to be the, the sort of hermit country that's desperate for resources to continue. Uh, and is that what motivates them in The Persian Gamble, uh, to ally itself with Russia and Iran in making their nuclear weapons available? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the alliance between uh, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, that already exists. Um, but what we haven't seen and what I interject, uh, inject rather, uh, into the Persian Gamble is this idea that North Korea might secretly sell the actual, you know, five of the nuclear warheads that they actually have already built or, you know, have received from another country, Russia. So that, I think, is fiction at the moment. But, uh, but again, North Korea is so desperate for cash uh, that, and, and oil that it's not implausible. I think it is plausible that North Korea might find themselves willing to make a deal with Iran for cash and for oil uh, to, you know, to to give up five nuclear warheads, which they're not using to get money and oil that they do, they would use. Uh, Yeah, I think that's possible. And that's what terrifies me. Mm -hmm. And that's why I wanted to put my, my hero, uh, Marcus Riker right in the middle of that and say, Okay, fix that. Figure that out. And that was a tough uh, but fun novel to write. Yeah. Now, The Persian Gamble follows the success of your 2018 novel, The Kremlin Conspiracy, and it portrayed the growing tension between the United States and Russia. And again, your um, your main character, former U.S. Secret Service agent Marcus Riker, um, is smack dab in the middle of all this as well. Now, it seemed like he was sort of sidelined. He was no longer going to have a, a, an official position, but he is he's sort of drawn back into all of this drama as events unfold. That's right. Marcus Riker is the hero of these stories, and he's a former uh, uh, combat veteran from the Marines. He served uh, multiple tours of duty in combat um, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and then came home, uh, of course, got married. Uh, well, not of course, unless you've read the book, but anyway, he gets married to his high school sweetheart and then joins the United States Secret Service um, and serves you know, first as a junior agent running counterfeiters down, but eventually working up to the elite presidential protective detail where he's protecting the president of the United States and actually wins a, a Medal of Valor uh, being wounded in the process of being uh, uh, protecting the president. So this is who my character is, but through a series of tragedies that I, I won't mention on the air now, people have to read it, some seriously bad things happen in his life. And so we watch Riker uh, sort of emerge into the height of his you know, sort of hero- heroic uh, history, and then he sinks down into leaving government, leaving the Secret Service, 
uh, retiring because of some personal tragedies in his life, and he's trying to figure out what to do next and how to, you know, how to pick himself up off off the real pain. And that's where some friends say, "Hey, come with us to Moscow. We've got you know the senator going on a trip. Maybe you can you know provide some security and some counsel." And and he finds himself in the exact wrong place. Hmm at the exact right time. And uh, that's the Kremlin conspiracy. And uh, the two books really are linked uh, symbiotically. I mean, it, ideally, you've read the Kremlin conspiracy, and then you read the Persian Gamble. But I tried to write the Persian Gamble such that if someone hasn't read yeah. the past book, they could pick it up and get right into it and, and not miss a beat. Well, and again, it's it's amazing how... Uh, what you write reflects what we're seeing and a, a, a scenario that could, we hope and pray doesn't, but, but could be plausible uh, in the future. One of the things that marks the the quality of your writing is that you do an extraordinary amount of research to make your thrillers as realistic and timely as possible. How how do you gain the kind of access that gives you that kind of insight? Yeah, well, it's a good question, Georgine. I, I, I didn't set out with a strategy, but I think part of the benefit was um, being involved in politics for more than a decade. Admittedly, I was a failed political consultant, so all <laughs> of my candidates lost. Um, but one of my candidates was Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and uh, and others uh, were people who opened doors for me as friends to other very interesting leaders. So, so part of it is being having lived in Washington for a quarter of a century, now moving to Israel, living in Israel, meeting with all these people. But then also the fact that after five million copies of these books sold, they they earn certain types of fans, mm-hmm. and some of them are former directors of the Central Intelligence Agency. Some of them are former you know, or current kings or presidents or prime ministers. President George W. Bush has been reading the last couple of novels and sent me very nice notes about them. It's very, very thoughtful. But what happens is doors open and you end up meeting people who are in current office at high level intelligence or military or political roles or they're former. Either way, uh, and some are Americans, some are foreigners. But they will invite you to come and spend time with them and ask them a thousand questions, and they ask you. And the next thing you know, you are gathering a lot of really interesting information. Let me give you one example. Uh Uh, So this is a political thriller about the threat of Iran to the United States, to Israel, and to our Arab allies in the Middle East. I'm not sure about this, but I I believe – I'm the only American political thriller writer who's ever actually met with the leaders of, of the United, uh, not only the United States and Israel, but Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, and Jordan, and have been to all of the, you know, not only to the White House, but been to the palaces in each of those Arab countries to spend hours of time talking to these leaders at the most senior level. Uh, the princes, the kings, the crown, the crown princes, the presidents, talking about Iran, the Iran threat, and other issues, and talking to their top intelligence chiefs and their foreign ministers. It's a very interesting way. You know, I, I don't know if you can. I'm not sure if it's a strategy. <laughs> it happens to have opened up, and it, I, mean, I think it adds a lot of flavor, a lot of nuance 
into these novels. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. We're talking with New York Times bestselling author, set to release a new political thriller, The Persian Gamble, closely mirroring events uh, in the Middle East. Joel Rosenberg, my guest, will be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, we're talking with the New York Times bestselling author, Joel Rosenberg. His uh, uh, book, The Kremlin Conspiracy, uh, precedes this book, his latest international thriller about a terrifying nuclear alliance among three world powers, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, and the man who has to halt their deadly strategy. The book is titled The Persian Gamble, and we're talking about this book that is a must-read. And you need to time when you're going to do it, because as you mentioned earlier, uh, you don't want to start right before you, you're planning to go to sleep because you will uh, you won't be able to um, to put the book down. Uh, let me ask you about since you brought up Benjamin Netanyahu, how serious are the political uh, difficulties that we're hearing about here uh, and in terms of his political future and the election that's coming up in April? Yeah, uh, well, he's in big trouble. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu um, has been investigated on four different um, corruption um, cases. Uh, the Attorney General of Israel has just announced that he's going to indict uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu on three of those cr- uh, criminal corruption cases. It, it involves um, bribery, uh, it involves all kinds of uh, very uh, bad <laughs> allegations. Now, you know, the man's presumed innocent until he's proven guilty. But when you have an attorney general um, who's, you know, indicted a, a sitting prime minister uh, on three major counts of corruption that are three entirely different cases at the same time, uh, this does not bode well. Um, his election, you know, numbers are falling already, and the election in Israel will be April 9th. So, um you know, there are, Netanyahu is is close to being the longest serving prime minister in the history of Israel. He served for three years during the 1990s, 1996 through 1999. He lost re-election then. I was on his comeback campaign team in 2000. We were thwarted, and it took him nine years to come back. But he's been the prime minister now for ten more years. So he is a man who knows how to win, even when the chips are down. But I don't know exactly how he gets out of this one. This is, uh, this is the most serious challenge he's ever faced. And remember, you know, what a lot of Israelis, even who admire him for what he's done with the economy and foreign policy and protecting Israel, um, is still a, a sitting prime minister who wants to be prime minister again, but is going to have to spend a lot of his time every day working on his legal defense, that means he's not paying attention to the needs of the country for that many hours every day, every week. And that's going to be weighing on the minds of voters who think maybe he ought to do something else and we need somebody else. So uh, we may be approaching the end of the Netanyahu era. Mm. Uh, Are these criminal charges and what's the worst case scenario if he is found guilty? Yeah, he could go to prison for a long time long time. Uh, you know, we've, Israel plays hardball with its p- political leaders, meaning it, um, uh, just a few years ago, uh, a sitting prime minister, Ehud Olmert, mm-hmm. was indicted uh, for, for things he had done, allegedly, 
prior to becoming prime minister, he was mayor of Jerusalem when those crimes uh, were allegedly done. But in the end, he had to step down from being prime minister. He was uh, indicted. He was convicted, and he went to prison. Uh, and years before that, uh, a sitting prime or president of Israel, Moshe Katsav, was indicted and uh, removed from office and went to prison for uh, uh, sexual um, uh, crimes uh, committed in office. So those are just two recent examples in the last 10 or 15 years of cases that, you know, it's not like, you know, in the United States, we've only had Richard Nixon in that situation, and he was pardoned. And of course, uh, Bill Clinton was impeached, but not convicted. And, you know, so American leaders have never gone to prison uh, if you're the president of the United States. But in Israel, uh, they do. Yeah. Now, he would be the first to be indicted in office, I understand. Well, I heard somebody say that, but I, uh, my recollection is that Ehud Olmert was sitting, was. Uh, the sitting prime minister when he was indicted. So, um, but he ended up, uh, he ended up quitting and stepping out of the prime minister's role. He didn't run again because his coalition was falling apart. You know, sometimes, you know, Bibi Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, says he won't step down. And I believe him, but the possibility exists that people who would be natural coalition members of his government might decide not to sit with an indicted prime minister. And that could cause his government to collapse or his next coalition, if he were to win the election, to collapse and, you know, unravel. Lots of twists and turns ahead, but Israel is facing uh, one of its most challenging seasons in terms of uh, uh, compromised leadership. Yeah. Let's talk about his political opponent. Uh, Obviously, the economy, national security are major issues there. Um, Are his opponents or is his opponent uh, up to the task of uh, assuming leadership in those areas in particular? Well, it's a great question, Georgine, because uh, the party that has formed, the new party formed to run against him, is, uh, is made up of three former chiefs of staff of the Israeli military and, um, and the leader of another um, opposition um, party. So uh, they certainly have a lot of military experience. But uh, the the leader of that party is a is a former you know general named Benny Gantz G A N T Z in English Benny Gantz Benny Gantz it was a very impressive chief of staff of the Israeli military. However, he's never served in parliament. He's never run for office, and it's not the same running an army where everyone has to salute and do what you say yeah. to running a government where. You know, the Israeli government is a parliamentary system, and it is a knockdown, drag-out, no-holds-barred political process. Uh, Benny Gantz has never been part of it. I'm not saying he can't do it, but he is a novice at, at this, not a novice at being a leader, but this is a very different type of leadership. Moreover, Gantz is trying to run for prime minister by just being not Bibi Netanyahu, and and that's why he's popular, because he's not... You know, he's not invited. He's not uh, he's not been around forever. He hasn't built a lot of enemies. But Gantz is making a big mistake because he's not telling us what his views are, what his policies will be. He's being very uh, cagey about that. And I have a problem with someone who 
says, please give me the keys to the car, but I'm not going to tell you where I'm going to drive. That's a problem. And he may fix that in the next you know, 40 days. We'll see. But at the moment, you have a very impressive leader who's not telling us where he's going to take the country. And that, that, so that causes people to be concerned. If you were to predict the outcome of the election, what would you say? No comment. <laughs> it's much easier for me to make things up in a political thriller like the Persian Gamble than to, to, to speculate on what's going to play out in the Israeli political process, just as it was almost impossible to imagine that uh, Donald Trump, who having never run for president, never served, never served in the military, never served in government, was going to defeat the entire Bush dynasty and the Clinton dynasty and become the president of the United States. Like, I did not see that coming. Most people did not. So uh, it would have made a great novel, but I didn't even think of it. <laughs> yeah, who could have thought of that? We're well, gonna... <laughs> that would have been quite a, quite a novel, but it was even stranger than fiction. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. Again, we're talking with Joel Rosenberg, his forthcoming novel, The Persian Gamble, a great read. You're not going to want to put it down, so, you know, time your reading accordingly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm uh, wrapping up my conversation with Joel Rosenberg. His latest novel is out. It's a new political thriller, The Persian Gamble. You'll recognize former U.S. Uh, Secret Service agent Marcus Riker. There's another character that's also introduced into this uh, version, a Russian double agent. And it is uh, one of those page turners that you're not going to want to put down. It's a great follow-up to the Kremlin conspiracy. But if you haven't read that one yet, you can still pick it up right at The Persian Gamble. I will warn you, though, you're going to want to go back and and, uh, read the uh, previous uh, novels as well. Uh, Well, this is an exciting um, uh, book. It's an exciting entry into your series of of, uh, books that really hold us spellbound thinking about what could uh, could happen. As we mentioned, you have a great deal of access to uh, political and national leaders. Um, Do you find that your books sometimes influence uh, their thinking, or do you find that you're more influenced by their thinking in terms of how you structure your books, or is it a little bit of both? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and I, I will note that uh, uh, the Kremlin Conspiracy is now out in paperback, so uh, for people who want to get it a little cheaper and read it uh, before the Persian Gamble uh, comes out on uh, March 12th, I would encourage you to do that. It's also available on ebook and audio. You know, I don't know... Uh, I don't know. I've never had one of these national leaders or world leaders tell me that they had made some different type of decision, you know, based on reading one of my novels. Uh, I would say, by and large, they're influencing me primarily. But but there must be something in these books that that hook their interests uh, and. You know, I guess what I hope is happening, but they're not telling me this, but what I hope is happening is they're, they're thinking about threats mm-hmm. materializing that they might not have sort of connected the dots quite that way. You know, you, don't, you can't assume that just because somebody is the president of the United States or the vice president or the king of a certain country um, or the prime minister that they thought of every scenario, right? It's true that they have access to much more intelligence and they have more insight and experience than I do, but... Sometimes when you read a scenario that's written out, spelled out in a novel form, it's very different from reading an intelligence document. 
And uh, so I'm hopeful. For example, you know, you and I talked last year about the threat of Russia launching a fast, super fast invasion of one of the Baltic countries, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, which are NATO countries. And if Russia were to do that really fast, like in about 96 hours, swallow up one of these small NATO countries, um, people would say, well, you know, Putin would never do that or Russia would never do that because t- attacking a NATO country would trigger Article 5, which would mean all of NATO would have to go to war against Russia. That seems crazy, except the way I wrote the, the Kremlin conspiracy suggests what if a Russian leader captured a NATO country, a small NATO country, quickly and then dared NATO, are you really going to go to nuclear war to save Estonia, to save Latvia? Most Americans don't even know where these countries are. You're really going to risk nuclear war? And when you think about it that way, you realize, I think, uh, or I, I guess that's my premise for Kremlin conspiracy, was that Russia could completely unravel the entire NATO alliance by doing something we think they would never do strike fast, capture a small country, NATO country, and then dare us to go to nuclear war to get it back. I honestly don't think we would. And that would be the end of Article 5. No one would believe us that Article 5 really meant anything. And that would be the end of the NATO alliance. It could be, if the Russians invaded one of those countries tonight, by next week, the NATO alliance could be over. And I think when you read a novel like that, and you think, whoa, that's crazy, but is it crazy? Um, that's where I think, I guess I hope um, I could influence a leader, you know, at the senior level of our government uh, to just think about something that they never thought about before. And in that case, just there, there was a simple antidote, and that is put more troops in the NATO countries, uh, in the Baltics, so that no Russian leader would be tempted to think that these are countries that are too lightly defended and could be grabbed quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book is titled The Persian Gamble. It's out in bookstores on the 12th. I would highly recommend you read it. I haven't quite finished, but I'm on the edge of my chair. In fact, we need to finish our conversation so I can finish the book. Joe Rosenberg, thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Georgine. Always great to be with you. Sorry it's not in person. <laughs> maybe sometime. We'll look forward to that. I'd like that. Okay, bye-bye. Again, the Persian Gamble. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow. Hope you're with us. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.